Today in the Fabulous 413, Senator Elizabeth Warren on environmental challenges to the Housatonic River, college funding, and her new role as the chair of the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee. Then, screenwriter behind the eight-time Oscar-nominated movie Elvis, Amherst's own Sam Bromell. And a clown! A literal clown! Here to talk about how to deal with feeling bad in their one clown show, please ship this wet gift coming to Northampton this weekend. But speaking of Northampton, Pearl Street got its oyster pulled as the city of Northampton seizes its liquor license. I so shouldn't laugh at that. You but can. I, I mean, I, I wrote it to be funny. It could have said Oyster Street got its pearl pulled, but that just wouldn't have been correct. The formerly iconic Northampton Club may be the first card to fall in local entertainment impresario Eric Shore's mini musical and real estate empire. Baron Horse Music Hall's liquor license, as well as other sewer-owned liquor licenses at his other venues, are also in jeopardy. Is sewer being treated unfairly, or is this long overdue? Meanwhile, Northampton wants to apply to the state for more liquor licenses, but wants to limit the number of pot shop licenses. Is it fair to limit pot shop licenses while asking for more liquor licenses? We'll talk more about this on tomorrow's show. Email us your thoughts, thefab413 at nepm.org. But first... Do we have you, Senator? Yes, you do. Hello. Excellent. Thank you so much, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Delighted to be with you. It's an honor to have you on as a guest on our second show, The Fabulous 413, here on NEPM. You have a new role as the chair of the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee on Personnel, which could impact veterans here in the 413 area code, and we'll get to that in a minute. But we got to go to the rumor mill first. When I put the word out that we were going to be speaking with you today, the first question that several people wanted to know is, and despite the fact that you have repeatedly said this, are you planning on running for Senate, not president, again in 2024? I am running for Senate in 2024. Joe Biden is running for president in 2024. And I'm going to be working my heart out for Joe and for Kamala and I'm going to be asking the people of Massachusetts to send me back to Washington to fight on their behalf. We're excited to be working with uh, New England Public Media News Department here. And Nancy Cohen is one of our excellent reporters. And she has been following a story out of Lee, Massachusetts. Lee is about to get an EPA-sanctioned toxic waste disposal site built in their town as part of the agency's plan to have General Electric clean up PCBs that it's dumped into the Housatonic River. There are environmental groups that are appealing the plan in federal court. You made an initial statement about it a couple of years ago. And what Nancy wants to know is if this river were closer to Boston, if the Housatonic were the Charles River, would it have been cleaned up sooner? Would the EPA build a toxic waste dump near that river in Cambridge? Is it the river's location here where there be dragons in Western Mass that's making it appealing for the EPA to do this? What's your take, Senator Warren? You know, I, I just can't tell you how frustrated I am about getting the Housatonic cleaned up. I talked about this 10 years ago and the importance to do it. And as you know, got a little bit done. Uh, they did it over in New York. You know, the other part I watch is the New York, Massachusetts part of this. But it is outrageous that this hasn't been done. And you may remember that there was an agreement with General Electric and what they were going to pay for and how much cleaning they were going to do in 2016. And they were they were ready to go, and then Donald Trump got elected. Mm -hmm. And GE, that had already agreed to do the cleanup, backed off and said, no, they weren't going to do it. So my job here is to keep my foot on the back of the EPA, and I want them to clean up the river, and I do not want them to store this waste near the Housatonic or any place else in that area. 
I'm wrangling with the EPA over this right now. I am glad that folks in the locality are raising it, but this just isn't right. We've had to live with problems in the Housatonic for way, way, way too long. And I think it is an insult now to turn around and say not only have there been delays of getting it cleaned up, but we want to do off-site, right there close, storage and processing of these dangerous chemicals. My answer is no. Amy Proietti, chair of the Greenfield School Committee and who also works at Greenfield Community College, asks student loan payment pauses and forgiveness plans aside, what is being done about college affordability and accessibility? With many schools costing beyond $60,000 per year, does the federal government plan to investigate the root of those exorbitant costs? And why are we still requiring a FAFSA when the feds already know the answer to every question they ask on the form? (laughs) How do we move to eliminate this barrier to access? Okay, many, many questions in there, but let me do my best. Let me do, let me do my quick yes, yes, no, yes, right, as we go through. Great. Wonderful. The first one I want to say, President of the United States clearly has the legal authority to cancel student loan debt. The Supreme Court will acknowledge that if they apply the law instead of playing politics. One way I know that is Donald Trump used exactly the same law to cancel a whole bunch of debt when he was president and nobody raised any objections, the law clearly applies here. I just hope the Supreme Court does not further undercut their own credibility by heading off uh, and doing more politics. You ask, I want to say something about college affordability and who goes to college. And I know this is, this is something near and dear to my heart that I work on, and that's food insecurity. One of the things I fought for, it hasn't gotten a big headline, but I think it's really important, is we have a lot of people who are in college, particularly at our community colleges, who don't have enough to eat. And so something I worked really hard on was to get SNAP benefits and other ways to make sure that those who are trying to get an education also have access to the food they need. And if you'll let me, I just want to take a little side mention how grateful I am to you, both of you, I know you've worked really hard on this, Monty, on the food banks and the importance of our food banks. And we have such a terrific food bank out in Western Massachusetts. I've been out there. I support it. I support it personally as well as in my professional life as a senator. But I just think food insecurity is a part of We have to remember who's going to college today. Right. And then I promise I'll give an answer on this last part. <laughs> and that is to say, I know it was a lot of questions. Trying to bring down the crazy high cost of college. Yes, yes, yes. I am in the middle of this. And it is a tough nut to crack because the schools are all different from each other. And half of the people in Washington, the Republican half, don't want to make the investments in our post-high school education. And that means technical training, community college four-year college, the kind of support that it needs to be able to educate people after high school. You know, this is a moment when we know that post-high school education is critical, both for getting a spot in the middle class, but also just for our country. We need people who have skills. We need people who have more education than just a high school diploma. And yet the Republicans are blocking us at every turn from the kind of programs and the kind of federal investment that would help bring down the costs for families. 
So I hope I covered all that. Mostly. Just the FAFSA question about why do we have to fill that? I'm oh, a parent who has a child going to a four-year college this next year, and all of that information is out there. Why do we have to fill out this other document? That it can be a barrier to people who don't have time or know how to navigate that paperwork. Bingo. You are exactly right. I am the co-sponsor of a bill to say stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and to get it down basically to just a couple of questions and access to your, your tax forms, and then you're done. My wife, who uh, has done the lion's share of the work on filling this out, will be much appreciative if that goes through. Good. The, uh, Good. The reason I hope you, we can get it done. Me too. The reason your office uh, reached out, Senator Warren, is that you were proud to announce that you're the chair of the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee on Personnel, which ha- uh, aims to help service members and their families have better access to things like housing, health care, child care. Uh, we've got a very high-profile Air Force base in our backyard. Yep in Chicopee, and we've had, it was a state-run facility, not a federal facility, with the uh, Holyoke Soldiers Home tragedy with COVID mm-hmm. early on in, in the pandemic. Our veterans need to be better cared for. What will your yes. new role as the chair of this committee mean for veterans, especially ones here in Western Mass? You know, all three of my older brothers served in the military. My oldest brother, Don Reed, was career military, and I feel like I've lived through the veterans' issues secondhand, because I sure got an earful from my brothers for a long time about the care that they didn't get and uh, their needs. I've been on the Senate Armed Services Committee for, for a long time now. A big part of what I've tried to do here is about money. I think our defense budget's too high. I really push hard on accountability for the defense industry that I think just gets fatter and fatter off the backs of our taxpayers. And let's be blunt, we'll tie it to the question before. The more money that goes into defense, the less money there is to go into education or housing or other issues. But for me, the special part, the part right at my heart, is not just about the weaponry that we talk about on Senate Armed Services Committee and authorized, but it's about how we treat our people. Our people when they're in active duty and our people when they are veterans, when they have served. And we have fallen short as a nation. We have fallen short on health care. We have fallen short on housing. We have fallen short in so many areas. So a big part of what I'm doing, jurisdiction here is mostly over active duty military, Mm -hmm. is that I'm bearing down on the places where we need to make urgent change. Part of that is around military housing, but part of it is around health care. And health care, also talking with the Veterans Administration about making sure that we have it available. And this is everything from authorizing and genuinely making accessible telehealth to people so they don't have to travel long distances to be able to get care, down to the quality of care that people are getting. Our active duty military, our veterans, all of their families, they deserve more than our just calling them heroes. It's great for us to stand up and applaud, and I do that. But we've got to walk the walk every day. They had our backs when they signed up to put their lives on the line for us, and that means we owe them to have their backs for the rest of their lives on the promises that were made for health care and other benefits for our veterans. And I want to see to it that we follow through on that. Do you think you'll have bipartisan support on that? You'd think a thing like Veterans Affairs would be something, and, and caring for veterans who have served would be something that would cross the aisle. And, and the answer is, I want to be fair here. Yeah, 
I think we do get a fair amount of bipartisan support. In fact, I'll raise one with you. I started in several years ago. I was very concerned about traumatic brain injury. We have a lot of folks in the active duty military or when they leave military life that have been too near bomb sites, and now it may turn out even firing a lot of firing weapons near your head may damage, may cause different kinds of TBI. And yet no studies going on in the military of this, no studies of our veterans, and no real help. So I've pushed for the data collection for the studies part of this so we can do more to avoid this problem, but also for help for treatment. And now we have in Massachusetts home base. And I don't know if you all have spent time talking to folks from home base, Mm -mm. but this is a facility that's now a partnership with the Red Sox, with uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, Brigham and Women's, Spalding Rehab. And it is the only place in the country that has developed programs for traumatic brain injury, PTSD treatment, mental health treatment, not only for our veterans, but also for the people who live with our veterans, for their families. And I'll give you one small example of this. I was at a home base yesterday, and we were celebrating um, getting $5 million in federal funding to them to help them with their program. And one person who spoke is a young veteran who's had some significant problems, and he talked about the help he received through home base. But the other one was um, uh, a woman who graduated. There were 10 women in her graduating class, is how they describe it. Last Friday, they had all lost spouses who um, had committed suicide Mm. as part of the after effects of their time in, in military. And they're out there on their own in the world. And part of what home base does and part of what I was able to get funding for them to do is to have a program that extends out to those who are living with losses like this and how to help them develop a community be stronger, Uh, also funding a program for children uh, who have lost parents uh, from their military service. So there's a lot of work for us to do. It's powerful and important stuff. And I think that despite, you know, no matter what you think about the military industrial complex, about the endless wars that it seems mm -hmm. like we can fund, we as human beings want to take care of other human beings, no matter what they've experienced. So this seems... Uh, very powerful and hopefully will mean great things for for our veterans here in Western Mass. Senator Elizabeth yes. Warren, who is the, the new chair of the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee on Personnel. It's been a delight having you on our, our second episode of the Fabulous 413 here. We hope you'll uh, be willing to come back and take more questions from our news department as well as from our listeners in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Let's keep up the fight. Thank you. Thanks again to Senator Elizabeth Warren. Coming up, a former Amherst Regional student whose movie is up for eight Oscars. We'll talk with screenwriter Sam Bromell. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. 
Early on in the process with Baz and I, we started referring to the film uh, in the writing process as a superhero musical, which is very Baz <laughs> to, to call it that. But it makes a lot of, it made a lot of sense to me and it was very helpful because you have a film that's got a lot of the tropes of a superhero film. It's got a villain. I mean, people say, oh, Tommy's like the penguin or something, but we wanted that. Uh, you know, he kind of looks like the penguin in the way that his, uh, his costume in the film as well. Yeah, he's, he's exactly. And so <laughs> you have the super, you have the villain and then you have a superhero, but instead of elaborate fight sequences and things like that, he gets on stage and kicks butt. Yeah, he does um, a lot of actual karate kicks too. So, I mean, that's Exactly. That's and Elvis, you know, wasn't as, as in the, portrayed in the film, you know, as a child, he was very influenced by Captain Marvel Jr. Right. Even the costumes later that he, you know, the capes and stuff, it all traces back to this DNA of him sort of seeing himself growing up as a very poor young man in Mississippi and really putting his family on his back from an early, early age as a superhero figure. And so all that sort of gelled into the choices that were made about, you know, how this character should be portrayed or what the form of the film should be. This coming Tuesday, screenwriter Sam Bromell will join us in person for a post-screening conversation moderated by me at Amherst Cinema, Tuesday, February 28th, 7 p.m., for screening of Elvis, which was nominated for eight Academy Awards. It won a bunch of Golden Globe Awards as well. It was directed by Baz Luhrmann, who you may have known before this from Romeo and Juliet or Moulin Rouge, Great Gatsby, and who teamed up with Jeremy Donner to write the story for Elvis and then partnered on the script with Donner, Craig Pierce, and Sam Bromell, who joins us here in the fabulous... 413. Thank you, Sam, for joining us. Thank you for having me. If, if Baz Luhrmann wrote this story with a bunch of people, what's the difference between the story and what you did as a screenwriter for people that don't know the inside baseball of making movies? It can vary what the definition of these things is. But in this case of Elvis, the story is a sort of conceptual idea about how do you tell the story of Elvis Presley? Now you could tell one weekend in the life of Elvis. You could tell the whole life story of Elvis, which is what we did. Beyond that, there's the question of then how you do that. In our movie, it's not just the Elvis story. It's actually the Elvis and his manager, Colonel Tom Parker story. In fact, Colonel Tom Parker is the sort of unreliable narrator of the story. Played by Tom and, Hanks. And, you know, some people think critically that Tom Hanks kind of commandeered a movie about Elvis portrayed by Austin Butler in a way that was phenomenal as a fan of Elvis to watch the way he was able to do young Elvis versus old Elvis so perfectly. And then Tom Hanks, who is a well-decorated actor with all sorts of uh, awards, in a, doing a strange accent, which wasn't necessarily part of Colonel Tom Parker's real history. So was that Baz Luhrmann's decision, and then you as a screenwriter have to implement those ideas onto the page? Well, first with, with the Colonel Tom Parker, who's you know neither a Colonel, a Tom, or a Parker. Right. His real name is Andreas von Kuck from Holland. Frankly... I, you know, I've, I've seen that, you know, people may or may not say that Tom Hanks, you know, what kind of what's he doing there? And it's it's a bit heightened, his portrayal of the colonel. But actually, I think it's very grounded because the colonel is, there's a great book on the colonel. I think it's just called The Colonel by Alana Nash. A number of great books on him. He's he's even more of, a, of an insane kind of manipulative clown figure than he comes across in the movie. So so in, in fact, he's almost kind of toned down. He's such a larger than life personality. You know, he matches Elvis in his total commitment to persona. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I think that's what 
you know, Tom Hanks was going for. And then, and then just to, to, to answer both the questions in terms of the story by what was sort of stress tested and, and, and decided in the story by phase of this was that if you're going to tell the whole life of Elvis, what you need is a device by which you can move through his life. You can jump through his life. And that the Colonel, because he's such a larger than life character and because he is such a fascinating character who says a lot about America the way Elvis does, he's a great foil. That was going to be a big part of it and the device by which we told the story. We're speaking with screenwriter Sam Bromell, who will be at an in-person post-film screening of Elvis at Amherst Cinema this coming Tuesday, February 28th. I will be there in my own Elvis style, uh, handmade <laughs> Aloha from Hawaii outfit that I wore as a part of a big food bank fundraiser. Because if you're going to interview the guy who helped to write the Elvis script, you got to come dressed as Elvis. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, Sam, you if you go to your IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, which is like the Wikipedia for people in the film industry and seeing what they've been up to, your list of credits is kind of small, but also include Baz Luhrmann in another project, The Get Down. What's your mm -hmm. relationship to Baz Luhrmann and how did you you know go from writing not too many things to writing with such a big name? Yeah, it's it, we've known each other for, I guess you could say, 10 years. And so I started working with him roughly by chance, uh, kind of a right place, right time thing uh, on The Great Gatsby, which he was adapting. The first thing he said to me on day one of that job, which he sort of thought, okay, here's what you're going to do. And he handed me the book of The Great Gatsby and said, your job is going to be to know this book better than anybody. Um, <laughs> and he handed me his copy of the book, which was like heavily notated and hard to decipher some of the notes, but off I went. The thing I say about a Baz Luhrmann film or TV series is I think people, you know, they see them, whether they like them or not, they think that there's a, a lot of stuff that gets made up. There's so much happening. It must be made up. Um, but actually he's loath to do that. He's building worlds in all, whether it's the get down or Moulin Rouge or whatever, there's a, a world needs to be built just like an Elvis. And to build a world, you need to gather detail to make it feel uh, real. So that detail is not invented. Usually it's drawn you know, process of research on that film, you know, by the end we're in post-production and it's a natural, and I had, you know, was already writing and things. And so it was a natural progression for me to start helping with revisions, things like that. But we, we built a kind of creative process that led to us just continuing to work together. Now we've worked on many things that also didn't get made and he also doesn't make that many things. So I sort of was, I sort of found myself as the, the writing partner in that traveling circus. And so yeah, we did The Get Down. Um, it's about New York in the 70s and fall of disco and the rise of a new thing called hip hop. When it came time for Elvis, he asked if I wanted to write it with him. And I, I, I said, absolutely, yes. You've worked on at least two music projects with Baz mm. Luhrmann and The Get Down and the Elvis movie. And they do different things. Like one is, is more historical and the other one is kind of a fictionalization, although it definitely touches on points. Like, wh How were those two projects different to work on, especially because one was mm. much broader. The Get Down is pretty broad. So in the Get Down, you know, the line went from from 77 to 79. And the line always ended with when the Sugar Hill Gang uh, song drops, which is the first recorded uh, hip hop song. And it's sort of the end of, um, well, it's the beginning of the marketing of it. 
similar ways, the process starts the same way. Research, a line, starting to pull the most important historical points above the line to go, okay, well, we got to have that scene. We got to have that moment. We got to be heading towards these tent poles. And then the difference, though, in the Get Down versus Elvis is that in Elvis, we were obviously telling the Elvis story. And in the Get Down, we had a fictional group, you know, the Get Down Brothers. And we're going to thread that fictional group through historical events. And we can kind of tell a historical story because they can brush up against real historical figures. So the blackout of 77 in New York will occur. And we know we learned that that's a moment in time when a lot of groups got a lot of their equipment um, <laughs> during the blackout. And so our group's going to get their equipment during the blackout. So that's like a thing that happened to a lot of groups, but our group is fictional. They're gonna meet Flash, they're gonna idolize Flash. He's And Flash is, you know, we, we met with Flash and we were like, well, you know, if there was this young guys and they were, you know, really, you know, fans of yours, but they wanted to do it, you know, how, how would you treat them? And Flash, you know, was, was very like, oh, well, you know, I, I wouldn't just take anyone on, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd make them pass a test. We we're like, you know, oh, we we're like, you know, kind of like a sensei. He's like, yeah, kind of like a sensei. So he becomes a kind of mentor sensei figure to them. It was a different process, though, because it was a fictional group of people. And we had a lot more story to service because it was a TV show. So That's, that was going to be my next question. Do you feel like you had a little bit more freedom because it was ostensibly TV? I'm not sure I would say we had more freedom because in both cases, it's like you set out to tell the story and the story doesn't really give you any freedom. You're just trying to get it as truthful and dramatic as possible. So we struggled to fit everything in and service all the storylines. And maybe we had more freedom, but it was, it was difficult because that 70s New York canvas is so fertile. You've obviously got the beginning of hip hop. You've got the end of disco. You've got punk coming in. Every, everywhere you turn, you go, oh, we got to have that in there. We want, you know, they're all brushing up against each other and cross fertilizing a little bit and then more and more and so it was really hard to make choices about like we can't you know we just don't have space to put that in because it seemed too great whereas in elvis it was like well it's the elvis story you know and and colonel too but we didn't need to go down too many other roads like wouldn't it be great if he had we had the scene where he meets the beatles would be but also it's not really the beatles story and so it's easy to make decisions about we don't really have time for that Whereas in the get down, it was like, ooh, it's a TV show. We could maybe fit it all in. <laughs> Speaking with Sam Bromel, who will join us for an in-person post-screening conversation moderated by me at Amherst Cinema this coming Tuesday at 7 p.m. We'll watch Elvis together, all 159 minutes of it, and then it have a... a long time yeah. to speak about Elvis. <laughs> no, 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 no. The movie is 159 minutes. Yes, I know. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should be a great time. And uh, like I said, I'm going to come dressed as a Aloha from Hawaii, Elvis. What's your relationship to this area, Sam? Do you have a relationship with Western Massachusetts that brought you the to- 413, The 413, as you refer to it? The fabulous 413 <laughs> here on this, you know, one of the very early episodes of our show. Yes, I do. Uh, I grew up in the 413, oh. mostly. We moved around a bit, but I-, I most of my elementary years, I lived in Belchertown. Nice. Yeah. And uh, then in middle school, we moved to Amherst. So I went to Amherst High. And when when did you graduate from Amherst High? 2003. So you're still a baby. <laughs> <laughs> trying, trying, trying to be. Did you happen to, uh, no, it might have been before him. John Bechtold, <clears throat> was he working in Oh, the yeah, I know John Bechtold well. I mean, we haven't 
been connected in many years, but he was my 10th grade English teacher. Oh, wow. Yeah, he yeah. is the only person I have ever acted for, as a, and he was my director. And, and my kids have all acted with him as well. I oh, think great. he is a super genius. So He's, he, was, he was a wonderful teacher. Um, I wish I'd been a better student, but <laughs> he was great. I'm sure, I'm sure you were great. I'll ask him on your behalf, Sam. Brumel. You can. Coming up. Elvis was a hero to most. But he don't mean peep to Chuck D. We'll talk about the Elvis movie and how Amherst screenwriter Sam Bromell dealt with Elvis's cultural appropriation. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. We're speaking with screenwriter Sam Bromell, who will be at an in-person post-film screening of Elvis at Amherst Cinema this coming Tuesday, February 28th. In the movie, a lot of emphasis is placed on Elvis's bona fides with the black community. How influenced he was by the black community. Um, some of these musicians are represented by uh, incredible musicians who are working right now, like Sister Rosetta Tharp is played by Yola, and uh, Arthur Big Boy Crudup is played by Gary Clark Jr. And then there was this friendship that they, they are showing between Elvis and B.B. King, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., in my recollection of Elvis, and I was obsessed with Elvis as a kid, I knew he was influenced by these artists. And then you start to, you know, listen to what Chuck D says. And, like, you know, a lot of people in the black community, including some of these artists represented, kind of disassociate themselves to a degree from Elvis in regards to appropriation. How mm-hmm. true is that part of the movie that you were writing about? How close was he really with B.B. King? How influenced did he actually go see Sister Rosetta Tharp perform? And, and Arthur Big Boy Crudup in his actual life? I mean, I think the short answer to most of those questions is is, is yes, and that we, we try to be very accurate. But when we started writing the movie, the first thing that Baz said was the cultural appropriation issue. Mm-hmm. We cannot, should not, and are not interested in making this movie if if Elvis is at the end of the day, a cultural appropriator, we don't want to put that, you know, and we're not going to lionize this or something, you know, it was the important elephant in the room. And we were very quick to say, well, you know, let's, let's basically drive the train straight at the cultural appropriation issue. Otherwise there's no point in doing this movie. So we embarked on a, you know, a genuine attempt to answer the question, you know, about cultural appropriation, whether Elvis was or was not. Every Baz Luhrmann project begins with, I joke, the search for the, a giant wall, a giant white wall. And that's because the, all the projects begin with a gigantic timeline. The first two lines that we put up on the wall was Elvis's line, and under it is written all his dates, you know, of every, of every major thing that's happened. The other line we put up was basically the key dates, moments in the civil rights movement. And that is not because we ever wanted to pause Elvis as some sort of participant even in the civil rights movement because he wasn't at key moments he you know he put his head down he he went the other way he he could have been braver when he was cowardly i would say but what you notice when you do that process is that for example one of the first thing that jumped out at us was you go okay so elvis's first single that's all right mama which is a cover of a blues song comes out it's like may 1954 he goes into the studio and records it in memphis and I think it's either six weeks later or something like that. Literally in the same in the same historical moment of bubble, the, the American Supreme Court hands down Brown versus Board of Education. And so here you have a decision that says the apartheid system cannot stand and separate is not equal. And you have culturally a white boy 
going in to a studio and singing a black song and and crossing a color line which the youth especially in the south there was a lot of we've referred to the radio as kind of like the internet in terms of pornography like you had white kids who couldn't go out and buy a black record by a black artist because it's in the south or wherever their parents were not having that but they could secretly tune the radio at night and tune into a black radio station so you have this young crowd who is starting to be primed for a crossing of the color lines that are so deeply entrenched. And then in this same moment, you have the Supreme Court handing this decision down, you have Elvis recording something in the studio. And then when you look at his career as it goes forward, it's not that Elvis is a leader, it's just that he's there at all these moments. And then you trace it back to his sort of DNA of being a white kid born in Tupelo, Mississippi. His father goes to prison when he's four. They're super poor. His mother and him have to move to the black neighborhood, but it's the apartheid South. So now he's the white kid in the black neighborhood, but every single day he has to walk out of the black neighborhood to the white school where they don't accept him. He's also, you know, part Jewish. He's, his whole existence is this kind of, and we, we started to refer to it, making of the film is this kind of alloy of what truly makes America great. These disparate influences combined and you track that forward to get back to your question, Elvis is extremely reverent of black American music. I mean, first he's going down to Beale Street, he's going into those club handy, he's going into those clubs, he is with B.B. King, he's, he's, he's very much of that world, but it's, it's also, it's really dangerous. At a certain point, which is what the film tried to convey, he's what, he needs to be whitewashed more because what he's doing is, dangerous and he and and he becomes a kind of barometer of of what's happening not not a leader well like in know. the movie when you watch the movie it's clearly written that he is not a leader and that he is it's almost running parallel lines and it's coincidental almost the different parallels there is that part in 1968 with the comeback special that's very powerful about what has gone on politically with the death of Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Robert F. Kennedy and yes. and in, in the parallels there. But again, it feels unintentional. It doesn't feel like Elvis was trying to lift up the voices of these black artists as much as he was just in his own lane, which, you know, he borrowed the sound from someone else's lane and just continued down in that lane with, with his head down a lot of the but time. But I'd say that I mean, opportunism makes the story even more American. Like, what is more American than stumbling into those sorts of things and then making them your own? And then being manipulated by this sort of P.T. Barnum-esque character, <laughs> Colonel Tom Parker, <laughs> into doing these things, who recognizes that a white boy doing this black music is a, a financial goldmine. Yes, that's what that's the role that the that the colonel plays. That he sees this as Elvis is sort of doing it because it's he's so kind of on the zeitgeist as there's a kind of racial collision coming. And the colonel sees this as very marketable. And Elvis ultimately goes along with that. It leads him first to incredible heights, and then he soars too close to the sun. Here's a guy who's just constantly on the hot spot of racial relations in America and and then they just and then Colonel et al decide that's not a place we I want my boy to be anymore that's a too dangerous place and and ultimately his sympathies even though he's not a leader his sympathies are progressive you know 
And so they have to neuter him. They, 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 they shave his head and they send him to the army and they whitewash him. And they, he's going to come back a good all-American boy and he's not going to cross that color line anymore. And he's not going to get in front of fans anymore. And he's not going to rile young people up anymore. And for a decade, he doesn't perform live. And he goes to Hollywood and he makes, you know, pretty silly films. Some, many of them loved, but, but ultimately not <laughs> loved, dangerous. Loved for their not, silliness. <laughs> not on the zeitgeist movies. <laughs> yes, right. You know what I'm saying? He's removed from the, from the American moment. And it destroys him spiritually. And he spends a long time trying to get back to being on that thing. And then that's where the 68 special comes in. And it, it truthfully was meant to be, he's going to sing Christmas songs. Right. And uh, he upends it. And then, yeah. And then, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy is killed while they're taping it. And Elvis is a huge fan of the Kennedys. People like to associate Elvis with Nixon. That does come, you know, a bit later. And yeah. Quite deep into drugs and paranoia. But early in his career, he's a huge fan of the Kennedys. Yeah, he's devastated. And, and that's the scene in the film where they, the, the, the guys, the young hippies producing the, the, the comeback special say, Elvis, you got to say something because they know where his heart lies and that he's devastated when King is killed in Memphis. He's, he's devastated when Robert is killed. They say, you got to say something. And he says, well, I don't really say things. You know, I don't, I'm not a guy, I don't give speeches. And the colonel's very much like, yeah, you don't give speeches. You know, they, they he say, well, you know, you sing. And so they do, they write that song overnight. Uh, if I could can dream, you know, I mean, the words are very reminiscent of, of King. And, 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 you know, I dream of a land where me and my brothers walk hand in hand. Oh, why, oh, why won't my dream come true? That is Elvis's heart. I think where we landed to come back to the question of cultural appropriation was it's really complicated. And he's a contributor as well as an appropriator. Before I let you go, Sam Bromel, Amherst Regional High School graduate and one of the screenwriters behind the eight time Oscar-nominated Elvis movie, which we will watch together at Amherst Cinema this coming Tuesday at 7 p.m., and then have a conversation afterwards. I was watching the Golden Globes. It was delightful to see Austin Butler there accepting an award for Best Actor, and to see Priscilla Presley and Lisa Marie Presley at the table, and then shortly thereafter, tragedy strikes, and Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis's daughter, uh, suddenly yeah. and shockingly passes away. How closely did you work with Priscilla and Lisa Marie in the writing of this film? I met both of them uh, one time separately uh -huh. um, in the in the early in the writing process because you know one thing Baz is very good at and I think it matters to him very deeply is that you don't go and tell people's stories without it's not just getting them on board but paying respect and respect means engaging them and you might learn something that makes you say you know what I shouldn't do this so we we yeah I met both of them one time and there was a conversation about doing the movie and you know Lisa Marie and, and her daughter said you know we've we've just never seen our dad slash grandfather portrayed as the man we knew it wasn't like a warning or anything it was just you know be serious basically and so in the, in the writing process they weren't you know super involved but we embarked with their words in our minds I know that Priscilla came around to Austin Butler playing that role and, and was kind of blown away by his performance there, as so many people were. And we'll see how it goes uh, at the Oscars in March when he is up for a nomination for Best Actor. Sam Brumell is an Amherst Regional High School graduate and is coming back to Amherst on Tuesday, February 28th, 7 p.m. We can watch his movie, the Elvis movie, together and then have a conversation about it after the fact. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to be part of that conversation at Amherst Cinema uh, on Tuesday. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you, Monty. Thank you, Khalees. It was, it was a pleasure to talk to you guys. <laughs> 
Coming up on tomorrow's show, Northampton seizes Pearl Street nightclub's liquor license. Not fair or a long time coming. And yet Northampton wants to apply to the state for more liquor licenses, but at the same time wants to limit the number of pot shop licenses. Is that hypocritical? We'll take some of your calls tomorrow or email us anytime at thefab413 at nepm.org. Coming up, please ship this wet gift. It sounds gross, but it's a one-clown show coming to Northampton this weekend. We'll introduce you to that clown coming up in the Fabulous 413. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Please ship this wet gift, a one-clown presentation about terrible feelings. That one clown is our guest, Marta Moselle McCrusty. She, her. The show comes to Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly this Saturday at 1030 and again Sunday at 1. Please ship this wet gift. It's not the easiest thing to say without accidentally committing an FCC violation. I'll be perfectly (laughs) frank about that. It's a collaboration with director Hannah Sims, who also grew up in Amherst. Hannah and Marta were on the same after-school softball team in fifth grade and have been best friends for 18 years. The show is this one clown's presentation on terrible feelings and it's recommended for ages four plus and adults who like awesome things that's hey, us that's me too that's us uh, tell us about the name please ship this wet gift which sounds <laughs> gross but it's kind of it amazing it sounds like a theater warm-up exercise yeah, yeah, please ship yeah. this wet gift it's a little challenge for you every time yes um yeah well honestly sometimes you just have to put a name on something and then it sticks. Um, because it's wet. <laughs> well, yes. A little okay. slimy, a little damp. Um, the The original thing was a piece of fridge poetry. <laughs> in, in an apartment I lived on, we had a bunch of uh, poetry on the door. And I wrote that. And I always liked it. I thought it was funny. Yeah, it is. And then, uh, you know, you had to write some grant applications. You got to <laughs> figure out what, what you're doing with your project. And you slap a name on there. And then you check if other people think it's weird and people keep mostly saying, no, I like that. So so it's, you know, that's where it came from. I love that. So what is the show about? Yeah. No, and it very much fits the show. It's, okay. it's not random. Um, the show is a clown's presentation on terrible feelings. And it, it is a gift. Um, you know, we want the audience to feel like held and seen and have a chance to feel something. So it is a gift. Um there is maybe some wet, watery things in the show uh-huh. at some point. Um, but yeah, it it is a clown theater um, show, which means not circus, but theater. And um, So no balloon animals. No balloon animals. Shoes, not small a skill. Car. I can make you a, a marionette, but I can't make you a balloon animal. I feel like that's a way more, I don't want to print value on people's talents, right? but it is yeah. just as valid and perhaps a little more intricate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes. Um, so, um, yeah, we explore terrible feelings because those are more fun to talk about. And that's the wet part of it? Uh, well, the whole thing's about terrible feelings, all of it, every yeah. single part. And the gift is embracing those wet gifts? Uh, uh, the, gift is, the gift is the show. Uh-huh. The okay. gift is the show. So tell me about what kind of feelings we're wrestling with, because it is an all, you know, basically all ages, four plus Yeah, show. yeah. We found that, you know, if you come as a parent, you're not going to be bored. You know, this show speaks to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um and we uh, mainly explore four more main feelings, 
for sections. Uh, we have um, things that are unfair, things that are scary, very sad things, and also things that are really annoying. Marta Moselle McRosty, who's one clown show coming to the Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly this Saturday and Sunday at one. You trained at Sesame Street. What? <laughs> I did. I did. Speaking about things that kids and grown-ups like at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Sesame Street. Um, who doesn't? Right. Um, yeah. We so, don't talk about those people. <laughs> so I. <laughs> so I am. I am a clown, and I've been studying clown, but even longer, I've been studying puppetry, and puppetry is actually sort of my original art form, my main art form, um, and. Uh, as a puppeteer, um, at some point in my career, I did submit a tape to get to uh, go and train at Sesame. They had an open call. So that's how you get to Sesame Street. Yes, <laughs> how you get a to tape. yes. The, you 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 pay attention. You notice when there's a call for auditions. You submit a tape and you get invited to come train. Um, this is something that they've done on and off. Um, you know, it's sort of. It's a bit of a family, you know, the puppeteers who work on that, and there's a lot of mentorship that happens. And, you know, you don't usually just sort of come out of nowhere. You know, there's sort of like you might do smaller roles and you sort of learn and are on set and, and you know, soak up the artistry of the older and more experienced puppeteers around you. And so sort of these trainings are a little bit, you know, part of that tradition. Um, so I did get to go do that uh, twice, which was very cool. You played at Snuffleupagus's wedding? Yes, which is unrelated, except that it's also Sesame Street, yeah. and also I know Stephopagus. That is, um, don't we all? Uh, he was my imaginary friend, and then all of a sudden everybody could see him. It was strange. Yeah, um, no, I did. That was actually my first time on the set of Sesame was actually just that I, you know, I studied puppetry. I also studied music in college. I also had a swing band, and I said, hey, you know, I, I have a swing band if you want it to play your, your wedding coming up. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, my swing band got to go to this wedding that was on the set, and I got to be there, and that was amazing as well, um, though not puppetry. We're speaking with Marta Moselle McRosty, and we've also got Hannah Sims in the studio, who's the director. They've both been friends uh, in the area. You grew up together, sort of, in, in the Amherst area, the Northampton area. Your family are well-known performers here in the Valley. Yeah, um, I grew up here, and my family was really involved in the arts, um, so... Uh, my mother, Robin McCrosty, was a trained dancer. She actually went to Juilliard. And, um, you know, back in the day, she would try to be like, oh, before it was really cool. Um, but, <laughs> uh, like, she didn't mean it. Not, not like uh, I did it before it was cool. She meant uh, before it was as fancy. But whatever, Mom. <laughs> um, and uh, she was a trained dancer and a choreographer and a costume maker and sort of held up those ends of things. And my father was a really good theater technician and a really good actor. Um, and my family was involved in all sorts of valley arts while I was growing up. So um, we did Hampshire Shakespeare like every summer. We did Valley Light Opera. Um, I grew up just like under tables playing with fabric scraps, like hanging out in theaters. Um, my mom also taught dance, so I did a lot of like going to her dance classes and sitting under pianos. Um, at the old Center for the Arts, you said, when it was well, yeah. at the D.A. Sullivan building yeah. there, right? Yeah, yeah. She, um, she trained in Isadora Duncan dance. Oh. Um, and, you know, so there's like a lineage of that. And she's in that. You know, she studied from someone who studied from who studied from. And um, she had something called Pan Valley Dance, which was her company teaching 
Isadora Duncan when I was little. Um, my sister did the classes. I actually never was technically in the classes. I just played with silk and ran around. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, that, those were at the Center for the Arts. And I think she taught adult classes as well. But um, yeah, so it's a very long uh, connection with the Center for the Arts. And now it's a different building, but yes. you're still coming back to the Center for the Arts, which makes it uh, that much, uh, a kind of a full circle situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels really nice. Um, you know, my mom... Uh, you know, has passed, and she was working on another piece of art. She was working on a uh, show about climate change, and it was some kind of dance theater thing, and it was actually kind of hard to understand what it was going to be, but trying to be supportive, and she was making this cool thing in her 70s and was uh, going to perform it at the center. Um, so, mm. you know, it's, it's nice to kind of come back to that place and do some art. Talk, um, talk about terrible feelings. That's yeah, awesome. and that's what yeah. this thing is about. It's oh like, no! A happy, oh, no. positive way with your kids four plus to look at <laughs> something that's hard, like it terrible feelings. Sharks, which I'm excited yeah, about. Very, oh yeah, I, th- that's very real for me. Marta Moselle McRosty, please ship this wet gift a one clown presentation about terrible feelings uh, in a collaboration with director Hannah Sims, who also went to Amherst Regional and had John mm-hmm. Bechtold. We had Sam Bromel on a, a little bit earlier talking about that. So that's, you know, it is a fabulous 413 that we live in <laughs> right here. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, the, that show is Saturday and Sunday at the Academy. Uh, excuse me, at the Center for the Arts. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow on the show, Northampton has seized Pearl Street Nightclub's liquor license and wants the state to apply for more liquor licenses but wants to limit the number of pot shop licenses. Is that fair? We'll take your calls or email us anytime at thefab413.nepm.org. Plus a tour through the abolitionist history of Florence at the Ruggles Center, a Northampton author making waves in the New York Times with her novel about chain-smoking tattooed nun who solves mysteries. And beer! The 413 is overflowing with local beer, but only one black-owned brewery, and it's right across the street from us here. We'll talk with Ray Berry from White Lion. Betsy Cordes is our engineer and historic house preservationist. Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Chuck Dubey are our technical team. Tony Dunn is our director and Ingve Malmsteen enthusiast. Music courtesy of local hero spouse, happy value guitar orchestra, homebody, Lord Russ, and the brass. We'll see you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.